This is season two of the Design in Transition podcast, a bilingual audio tapestry where we weave interviews, commentaries, and artistic explorations in Spanish and English. We converse about designing for systems level change towards more sustainable and equitable futures, as well as the transitions design is taking in theory and practice. Today's conversation is in English. We will now direct our Spanish-speaking listeners to the end of the episode for the commentary in Spanish. La conversación de hoy es en inglés. Te invitamos a escuchar nuestra discusión en español acerca de este al final del episodio. In this episode, Marisol Ortega and I, Silvana Jury, have a conversation with Igor Grossman, who is the director of the Wisdom and Culture Lab at the University of Waterloo in Canada and also a fellow co-host of a podcast that is called On Wisdom. This is a really interesting conversation on a topic that we think it's extremely important for designers to engage with, which is the topic of wisdom. And this is a, an area that just looks into expanding our ideas of how we understand knowledge. In this conversation, we explore ideas related to wisdom, wise reasoning, and also what this means to forecasting and thinking about the future, dealing with the current complexities in the world, and we also explore some of the connections and possibilities for design. Thanks, Igor, for joining us for an episode of our podcast. Uh, we're really looking forward to this conversation, which could draw very interesting and new connections to our field of work. And we hope we can explore some ideas today with you. But first, we'd like to ask you to introduce yourself. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a professor of psychology at the University of Waterloo, where I direct the Wisdom and Culture Lab. And my main line of work is on the cultures and how they change, especially now, as well as on the concept of wisdom or particularly wise judgment. Thank you. So we're curious to learn more and especially to uh, introduce our listeners to this new emerging field, also known as wisdom science. But first of all, would you tell us a bit more about how you came to be interested in studying wisdom or wise uh, judgment and why you think it's important today? That's a very loaded question, but the answer is very simple. Uh, many people, when they're approaching how they came about to study something and probably pull off some kind of beautiful story out of the hat, often the reconstruction. In my case, it's uh, very simple and very plain. When I came to graduate school, uh, my supervisor was very interested in uh, bridging uh, the uh, idea of cognitive process that he has studied in a cross-cultural comparison to the domain of aging. And uh, when you talk about aging and older adults, there is this adage that with age comes wisdom in many languages. And uh, so he approached me, like, how about you look at how we can capture wisdom in a methodologically sound fashion? There's no magical or mythical thing. Now, the reason why we probably need wisdom is uh, self evident the world is as usual in many conjectures in uh, history at crossroads uh, we are in the midst of a pandemic uh, where different people have different interests and minds there's a lot of uncertainty uh, there's a lot of loss uh, there's a lot of challenges about how to understand uh, how to move forward how to navigate the issues ahead how to accurately plan for the future there's also a lot of egocentrism and self-interest that motivates some people in more affluent countries to claim all the vaccines for themselves and not really think about the big picture um, so a lot of this type of 
features, uh, be it about self-interest or conflict of interest, interest in freedom versus uh, freedom of movement, freedom of do and whatever you want to do, and benefit of the common good where you actually should be constraining yourself, imposing some pretty draconic measures on yourself for the benefit of other people. Uh, it's a classic topic in uh, philosophy when philosophers talk about wisdom and where you have uh, conflicts between the immediate interests and the long-term interests are classically the topics that involve the concept of wisdom. Now, what is it? That's a different story, and that's what we'll be talking about today. So what is it? Uh, that's a loaded question. Depends on whom you ask. Uh, what do you think? Well, I'm a little bit biased because I was listening to some of your interviews <laughs> before. So I know how you are defining it. And I like the fact that you're saying that it's about this processes that you go through when you have to encounter situations where there's no right or wrong answer. And that is very much dependent on context and your upbringing as well. Uh, and the situ the the specific uh, conditions that you've been experienced experiencing throughout your life. So I was wondering, well, one, what is it for you? And then two, this aspect of the understanding of how contextual aspects like social ecology and cultural specificity determines what wisdom or what is uh, wisdom reasoning. Yeah, I think in many traditions uh, that are not succumbing to uh, what some philosophers would describe in the Aristotelian sort of more essentialist perspective, even though Aristotle actually did not subscribe to it, to it either, but that's a separate story we may get in later. For many folks, what's central to the idea of wisdom, it seems, is this idea of contextualized reflection on issues that you have in front of you. Now, different issues call in for different, uh, I embedded in different contexts and call in for different actions. So because of that, you can't really have some kind of rule of thumb and say, well, this is wisdom, because that's in the eyes of the beholder. It's also in the, um, depending on the situation, and it, actually going back to the Aristotle, the, the true Aristotelian perspective is that uh, the practical wisdom is about figuring out what to do in this situation and how it differs what to do in this other situation and um, figuring out what's the difference between this and that situation. So it's kind of a really awareness of how it changes and how context may or may not map on uh, the strategies that you may be employing to effectively resolve them. So from that perspective, wisdom has a lot about this contextualism. And of course, you can go on the further level, like higher level of abstraction. And yeah, you would say, well, for each of us, there is some kind of a subjective reflection an interpretation of the experience that we're encountering. Whenever you have a challenge in front of you, a difficult thing, either interpersonal, political, planning for the future, figuring out how to talk to your partner after possible conflict, how to discuss an issue with a friend, uh, you interpret the experience. You don't really just perceive it as is. We never do. I mean, it's, it, there's an objectivity illusion uh, that we often succumbing to believing that we do, but the reality is not what we Pursue it. Uh, it's uh, always filtered how the context in which we find ourselves in makes us interpret the reality and whether this interpretation is biased in one way or another. I guess the first insight of sort of like baby wisdom would be to realize that and uh, to find ways to bridge this divide between you and others. Mm -hmm. 
thank you for that. I think that's greatly well interesting for especially for us designers because it has repercussions on many aspects of our work. Firstly, I guess the first uh, connection is that our work is focused on practical aspects of a usually particular situation, so it's highly related to this idea. We're always trying to learn from our users to adapt to the particular situations as they we're we're used to knowing that they do vary and it makes a, a massive impact but also in the sense that if we acknowledge that the actual context in every sense is playing a role in how we are understanding reality and our, how we make our decisions then it also means that the way in which we design from a product to a building to the systems that we design today it will also have a, an important implication on maybe how this the decisions or the actions that are carried out in this context may be maybe wiser or maybe less wise. But I think another aspect that is really interesting in what we can learn from this very broad field of study is that if we acknowledge all this diversity and the fact that there's no single perspective on reality, uh, that leads us to acknowledge that what you mentioned earlier, that there will be conflicts, there are different interests. And this is a massive area that sometimes puzzles us because we're always working in this with these tensions, always trying to incorporate different stakeholders that are related to the work that we do and so broadly this is in a way what designers do but then this brings up all these questions about preferred by whom whose interests who gets to decide and how do we deal with these conflicts which is a situation in which we're always confronting ourselves through our work what can this field of study teach us about that my answer would probably be quite disappointing to you because uh, I'm not sure. Uh, the question about how exactly to balance different interests uh, in a way that would be beneficial to every party has not been truly studied empirically in the science of wisdom or, or related fields. It has been partially studied in decision-making research in general, even though there it's almost always studied from the sort of very narrow neoclassical perspective, uh, which means that you just assume that everybody is after their own interest and doesn't really care about other people unless caring for other people would also benefit them. If you do that, you, you end up with a mathematical model that can help you to figure out how to balance interests. But uh, if you really try to make it more realistic to the everyday world where we don't only care about our ego, ourselves, but also about other people. And we often don't do that for egoistic, but often for altruistic reasons or more civic reasons. And uh, it becomes very, very complicated. In wisdom research so far, uh, we know that it's a good thing to do. It's a good thing to balance. And uh, not only in wisdom research, but also in research on forecasting, for instance, uh, people who are able to integrate different viewpoints or consider different viewpoints in a way that affords some kind of integration instead of just saying, this is right and this is wrong. This is clearly a wrong answer. I Yeah, I know it exists, but it's bullshit. If you are not tempted by this kind of discounting of unpopular opinions, it turns out you're better at forecasting, at least according to some research suggesting that you're more accurate in your predictions, especially in the geopolitical domain. 
but um, we don't know how exactly to do this well. We don't know how to make people balance things better. And uh, one of the reasons why it's so hard to figure out how to exactly to balance different interests is because uh, quite often these interests operate on different planes. On the one hand, you have the immediate effective reactions or impressions that you may get. You look at a certain building and uh, you may feel something about it. On the other hand, you have this kind of deliberate considerations about uh, what is the purpose, what is the meaning, or what is the utility as some of the uh, folks in the designer community or in the economics and decision-making talk about. What is the practical use of it? And those two are often incomparable. You can't really put it on the one side, uh, these kind of effective reactions, on the other side, uh, deliberation uh, about the costs and use uh, as if they were on equal scale. Very, very hard question. Uh, because ultimately, it's all filtered through subjective experience. It's all filtered through how much you personally value something, as well as the community that you're part of may be valuing something. So speaking of models and trying to figure out through research what um, an approach or like you were talking about forecasting or different approaches of forecasting and you've been working on this on analyzing different approaches to forecasting by asking different people to forecast changes in society due to COVID. So we were wondering like uh, how do you like what are the parameters that you're thinking about when you are seeing these different approaches approaches and how to make it more accurate than others. Like, uh, we know that you started this uh, research last May in 2020, so we are wondering if you have some results by now and which one the, was the most accurate and, and why? This is an interesting question, and it leads us a little bit away from wisdom, except that it has some overlap with the question about what are the better reasoning strategies and what and, and as well as the topic of forecasting and foresight, which is, of course, uh, one of the ways how wisdom is often defined. I would be hesitant ma making really strong claims about the evidence uh, from the forecasting tournament that I ran uh, last year, just right now. Preliminarily, uh, just by looking at the initial data, and this is, by the way, for those who are listening, uh, a big project with over 120 teams, scientists, data scientists, intelligence community from around the world who were asked to make predictions about the social, mental health-related issues, prejudice, happiness, um, emotions, political polarization in the United States over the course of the pandemic for each single month over the, for the duration of 12 months. But preliminarily, if you look at the first half a year of data, one thing that we see is that uh, people who rely on data were a little bit better uh, than those who just relied on theory and intuition. But uh, it also is consistent with prior research that suggests that uh, data-oriented forecasts are often somewhat better. Now, by better, I mean that they're less extreme. Those forecasts that were just based on some kind of intuitive or theoretical models were pretty wild, I would say, uh, relative to what happened. And this is, by the way, a typical thing. A lot of us predicted that, uh, you know, mental health crisis will be through the roof. Turns out it was not really the case. For some groups it was, but overall for the society, the United States is a big country. Uh, that was not the case. We thought that uh, polarization would be through the roof. Well, no, it certainly was 
uh, heightened during the time of the presidential election last year. But again, not more than typically it is during the time of a presidential election. Uh, we thought that prejudice would be through the roof. Well, and then George Floyd happened, of course, and uh, there was a reaction to that where uh, we are trying at least to be, at least explicitly, when we talk to others, not to present ourselves as horrible racists. But bottom line is extreme forecasts are probably not the way to go. And uh, to go back to your question, the data-driven forecasts were less extreme, so they were probably better off. But this is very preliminary. And the other thing that we found is that, uh, that the complexity of the data-driven forecasting models didn't really make them for more accurate more accurate predictions. So if you like have some kind of super complex model uh, that tries to account for every single nuance in the past data, because we gave people past data to create the models in the first place, uh, sort of using either statistical algorithms or some kind of uh, big data machine learning algorithms, that would really help. Thank you so much. And thinking about, um, as you said, like the connection between wisdom and forecasting being this ability to foresee uh, what could be the future uh, according to what you've learned from the past this type of practical knowledge you're talking about like how one of the reasons why making a prediction is difficult is because you don't know all those different aspects that you can't control you mentioned the elections for instance uh, so I'm thinking of the relationship between those aspects of life that you can really foresee or control and the relation or like the role of design, especially uh, in the case of transition design, we try to see what could be those predictions uh, to intentionally intervene or interfere in this foreseeable trajectories. So I'm wondering and I don't know if you have any ideas of like what could be the role of the assessment of accuracy in forecasting and the interplay of this design of interventions because if our forecast is not is like completely inaccurate then the intervention is kind of useless so especially now that like if there's this situations where there's no right or wrong solutions how can we think of this role of assessment of accuracy of a forecasting to see to know what we could do as a, a way to intervene it's a very complex question and uh, there is as you pointed out no right or wrong answer to that except for maybe relying on some of the prior research on expert judgment and strategies that prove to be more effective in the domain of expert judgment one of the uh, fundamental insights uh, insights is that it's not only about the actual point of forecasting, but it's also about the confidence uh, interval, so uh, the magnitude of uncertainty around the prediction about, for instance, what direction will a certain trend go. So instead of just saying, oh, it will, it will be going up 3% or 5%, or it will be X number of uh, cases of COVID, let's say, this is about COVID, to make it a simple and possibly accessible example. That by itself is not sufficient. What you need to do is also, okay, so what is the maximum band you think with 90% confidence? What is the lowest band where you think it's 10% confidence or something like that? And create uh, basically a multitude of scenarios to indicate that Look, it's not just like it will go like this. It can go much higher. And this is where 
uh, we may see room for additional strategies, mitigation strategies that would help to address those concerns if it's much higher, as well as it could be quite low. So maybe we don't have to spend all the resources just on this one thing that we think is most desirable or looks the best or we want the most. It's easy to forget, by the way, you know, because of course of the pandemic, we've seen so many times that uh, because we often want things to be a certain way, we often delude ourselves to perceive things to be a certain way and assess the risks, uh, for instance, accordingly and assess probabilities incorrectly based on this kind of uh, motivated biases. Because we are motivated to to see uh, or like to, to, to get out of lockdowns, for instance, faster, uh, we would potentially misperceive the risks after a long period of being in the lockdown, thinking that the risk is lower than it actually is, and so on and so forth. I think this point on uncertainty is fundamental, and it's interesting that it's um, the space of wisdom science has, and especially in, in the case of your work, wise reasoning, that is one of the elements that is quite prominent there. And it is also true for the field of design. We often say that we're just, we don't have too much specificity in terms of a particular topic, but more about processes. And one feature of those processes is actually uncertainty and moving between different flows, different types of processes coming back and starting all over again, which we often describe by using this um, sort of visual metaphor of a double diamond, which connects all these um, sort of opposite trends of diverging and converging or analysis and synthesis and so on. And it is in, in this space in which we move around or explore this uncertain field and try to push towards some sort of outcome or direction by testing, by just materializing things and seeing if it works. Which to me reminds me of this idea of practical wisdom because it will be directed to a particular situation it's about it's directed towards action and so on and also i find many connections with definitions of wisdom and the reason why i'm saying this is that one of the ways in which we approach this idea of considering multiple pathways multiple scenarios is that to be able to do that we need creativity because we need to step out of reality as as we know it and explore this uncharted territory in a way. And not everyone is able to do that, especially without these mathematical models. Just to think about that is hard uh, for some people. Uh, so I wonder if you have something to say about or uh, thoughts about the role of creativity in all of this. Yeah, I have some things to say. Not many of them are very flattering. I think the concept of creativity is often overused and underspecified at the same time. Uh, it's a label that we often use to just, like wisdom, describe something that's good without really communicating the same meaning over and over again. So different people mean different things. Now, if I were to break it down uh, into more fundamental elements similar to this uh, double diamond model, I would uh, probably say that there is this feature of uh, differentiating uh, and understanding different ways how some things can be used or thinking about different angles 
on an issue topic, be it design-related topic or otherwise, and uh, contrasting it, of course, with what already exists either on the market or just generally in the sphere uh, that you're thinking about. And in addition to this differentiation stage, you have some kind of an integration. You have to bring these different perspectives that you're thinking about together or contrasting this new perspective against the existing dominant viewpoint on an issue. In that sense, if you're talking about this differentiation on the one hand and integration on the other hand, there is nothing unique to creativity that is not part of the a general sort of cognitive architecture of wisdom, proce- uh, wisdom-related process. Things that philosophers for a long time, both in East Asia or South Asia or in uh, ancient Greece or more recently talk about when they talk about wisdom. So what do you need to make a wise judgment? Well, you need to consider different alternatives and you also need to figure out ways to integrate them. How is that not creativity? So for me, that's... Uh, uh, suggest that creativity is an element of wisdom or well, whether it's the same thing well it depends on the context i mean often when we talk about the creativity we talk about practical solutions that have not really this social component to it when we talk about wisdom we often talk about the social domain social issues uh, we don't talk about wisdom when building a skyscraper we could but we often don't. And we don't talk about a creativity when we talk about an interpersonal dilemma between a husband and wife when wife admitted being unfaithful or maybe the husband being unfaithful. And nevertheless, we probably would use the term wisdom in this domain instead of creativity. What I'm trying to say is that there's probably a little bit of overlap between the two. And uh, in this uh, more general sort of common framework that we try to establish now, uh, both myself as well as many other researchers in this sort of emerging science of wisdom, we uh, view elements of creativity as key features of what would make for wise judgment in the situation. But they're obviously not sufficient. There's something that's missing, be it about the context or some additional features that creativity doesn't capture in the common understanding. I would like to ask about the self-decentering techniques and how you've done some studies around that. So self-distancing or decentering, as some clinical psychologists call it, is uh, a strategy where you view yourself in the third person. Uh, you try to visualize yourself to be a fly on the wall or a distant impartial observer of your experience. And this is not a new technique. I mean, you can look at the writings of Julius Caesar and you will see that uh, he and several other Roman emperors sometimes wrote in the third person. Or, you know, LeBron James, the basketball player, when he was making a decision which uh, team to play on, he was talking about himself in the third person instead of saying I, I decided he said lebron james decided which was kind of interesting and entertaining now there are negative examples too or i would claim it's a negative example where donald trump sometimes talks about himself uh, tweets about himself in the third person or used to tweet before he was blocked from twitter fortunately. But uh, the point is that uh, there's this idea of uh, distancing uh, and uh, creating some kind of a different way to experience the situation that you're part of instead of just being subject to this illusion and perceiving the world through your own eyes and immersing yourself in the experience you take a step back and by doing that just that 
you get a little bit closer to maybe realizing that other people have different perspectives than you do. You get a little bit closer to realizing that, you know, your knowledge may be limited. Instead of making some kind of a rush decision in a given moment, you should maybe uh, deliberate a little bit longer or consider other perspectives. So consider the fact that you may be wrong in the first place. So all those key elements, be it this recognition of limits of your knowledge, consideration of diverse viewpoints, a willingness to even consider alternative perspectives besides your own, that are so central to the idea of wisdom, of wise judgment, of wise reasoning. And so a number of years ago, when I was still in graduate school, Ethan Cross, a good friend of mine from the University of Michigan, and I decided to do a range of studies looking at the role of this distancing or decentering for um, wisdom. And across different studies, we found similar results where, you know, you ask people to take this perspective of fly on the wall, for instance, talking about yourself in the third person, then you look at the results and people are a little bit uh, humbler, uh, a little bit more willing to engage with other perspectives, a little bit more willing to recognize that things may change in different directions than what would they have anticipated initially. And that was all great, but the problem has always been how long-lasting are these effects. So when you come to the lab, I tell you, talk in the third person, you talk in the third person, you'll like recognize limits of your knowledge, you leave the lab and you're back to your usual self. And so my question was like, can I find a way to make people stick to this strategy even after they're done engaging in it because I told them so. And so one way I thought about it is like uh, people write a diary. And so I got a, a range of people coming to the lab, do a, a measurement. But then I said like, okay, for months you write a diary and every day you write on the most important thing of the day but you either do it in a usual way, you look first person, so today this was the most exciting thing. Oh, today was this horrible thing that happened to me. How could he have betrayed me? Blah, blah, blah. Or in another group, people randomly assigned, they do the same thing, but in a third person. Today, Igor realized that his friend was a jerk, but then he realized that he was a jerk to his friend too, and so on and so forth. And so they do it for a month. And after that, I bring them back to the lab and they take a look uh, without any instructions now how much wisdom, how much recognition of limits of knowledge, how much openness to change, how much are they willing to compromise and so on, they show compared to before this uh, diary practice. And there we find some promising, small, very small, but promising effects, suggesting that when you do this diary in the third person, you may be able to reason more wisely thereafter, even without intervention. So the question, of course, is how long does it uh, stick around? Uh, I mean, we only did it a few days after you're done. So maybe you're still kind of feeling like you should be doing it in the third person. So if that were the case, this would be just a replication of those kind of experimental studies in the lab. Uh, but we do think that the idea is that uh, because you do it repeatedly across different situations that you experience in your everyday life, in your ecology, uh, you are developing some kind of a habit of when you're reflecting on difficult challenges, you are more likely to view the, uh, them through this kind of an impartial third-person viewpoint. It doesn't mean that you'll suddenly start uh, talking about everything in the third person, but instead of that, uh, what it means is that you would be more likely to consider a bigger picture on the issue. 
And that in turn would promote uh, this. So you would be construing the experience, as social psychologists would call it, this kind of subjectively understanding the experience through this kind of third-person lens. I was um, also really interested in that aspect and really sparks my curiosity about whether it's possible to go beyond this text center or like because it's about speech or how you talk or write about yourself and go into another uh, sphere, maybe... Uh, more experiential or maybe other methods from the arts that just makes me curious about the potential of maybe our field to contribute to that kind of exploration especially because we often ad adopt this idea of estrangement or how we can create different experiences that could put people in a position to yeah step outside and see the bigger picture maybe there's potential to explore that as a different approach to try and get to the similar yeah for sure it would be really interesting uh, the challenge here is always you try to make an experience that is currently a habit into something it is not. And because it's not a habit, you may be thinking more carefully about it. And at the same time, you want to make this kind of, as you said, like estrangement to be a habit. Now, it's not a habit. As soon as it becomes a habit, it's not estrangement anymore. The definition of it is that you're supposed to feel different about the experience that what your usual self does. And if your usual self is like a Buddhist monk, uh, constantly reflecting on himself, maybe in the third person or being sort of uh, impartial, uh, then there is a question whether all these techniques, be it experiential, linguistic, or uh, otherwise, would work so there i don't know the exact answer but in terms of like uh, whether it would work um, by using some kind of experiential practices of uh, changing your posture uh, being in the forest where you are a city dweller and so you rarely are in the forest and now after experiencing uh, the nature suddenly you have this realization that you never had before it's all possible uh, there is some evidence that, you know, you see some kind of a amazing nature and you're then awestruck. This idea of awe as, a, as an emotional experience that uh, kind of leads to a realization that you're like a really small thing in the universe. And uh, that by itself apparently also acts as some kind of a decentering technique. So maybe that does help and maybe this does work. But I, I often find that uh, a lot of this kind of experiential techniques that advertise you walk into well before the pandemic you walked into any airport and there will be a range of books uh, by tony robbins and all those self-help gurus who claim they can make you a superhuman uh, better person solve all your marital problems make you a billionaire etc and uh, none of it is based uh, based on any science it's all just you know like uh, they're based on the anecdotes and as usual with any folk psychology and folk wisdom there's one anecdote that goes against the non-anecdotes it suggests exactly the opposite of that uh, so there's a question whether it actually has any value so i'm always a little bit hesitant uh, when it comes to these techniques because a lot of them are not based on any scientific evidence and are just anecdotal in nature but in principle in principle, I completely agree with you, where I think that it doesn't have to be linguistic, and we actually have shown that it doesn't have to be just linguistic in some of the early experimental work where we ask people to sort of visualize themselves uh, from afar or imagine that they're in a different location instead of uh, sort of some kind of mental time travel, where they, for instance, are like in Iceland instead of in the United States, and whether that would change uh, their perception on the U.S. election. And preliminary research suggested that it does. But uh, 
you know, I think we need much more science, much more rigorous empirical evidence, better studies to really dive into this question. So I would be very hesitant to build, for instance, some kind of training techniques that are not based on science, because then people end up doing something that may not only not do anything, but even damage them. So maybe we uh, we can talk a bit uh, about your experience producing a podcast because you're a fellow podcaster. So has that experience um, taught you anything new? Well, let's see. Uh, what has the experience of podcasting taught me? Uh, not to hate how you sound to other people because you probably realize that when you record the podcast and you listen to your voice uh, for many people myself including that is a very aversive experience because it certainly does not resonate to how i hear myself for obvious reasons here's another example of you know objectivity illusion you think that other people hear you the same way you hear yourself that's not definitely not the case that's the biggest hurdle probably to overcome for anybody who starts a podcast i think the podcast was really helpful for me over the course of the pandemic because i was uh, doing a series on how scientists predict the future and uh what do they think uh, the biggest positive and negative changes after the pandemic to be. So that has been very fun as a, as also, uh, and, and also a coping mechanism over the course of the pandemic because it's certainly on many people's minds and have some kind of a uh, pseudo intellectual outlet to reflect on it with a friend because my podcast is with uh, Charles Cassidy who is a good friend of mine and is not in the same place as I am so we could also check on each other and see how uh, we are doing and how people in other countries uh, be it England he was in England for a while and he was in the US now I think he's back in England for a little bit before he moves back to the US so that was also quite an interesting experience. But uh, overall, yeah, um, certainly learning about yourself, learning not to hate yourself, learning more about this illusion that we have about how others perceive us and uh, some degree of humility about the nonsense that you're talking about and how others would then be reacting to it. I would say, in addition to that, I learned a lot about the technical elements of it, how to make yourself sound better. Um, but uh, those are probably boring details you don't want to uh, go into. I was just going to um, ask you to tell everybody the name of your podcast and where they can find you. Yeah, so we have, uh, Charles and I have the Own Wisdom podcast, and you can find it on any uh, platform, and uh, it's onwisdompodcast.com, where you can also go online and just uh, subscribe to it uh, through those means if you're interested. If you're interested in wisdom, if you're interested in decision-making, uh, well-being, and evidence-based insights from science instead of just pseudo-gurus uh, on these topics. Uh, check us out, subscribe. That's a good point. Thank you. Is there any particular episode that you would uh, recommend to our listeners? Maybe many of them are designers. Well, it depends on the topic. Uh, we discuss a wide range of things. Um, uh, so it depends on the interests of uh, the person. It said, like right now, we are having the ongoing uh, conversations about the world after COVID, which is this multimedia project that I started with over 50 of the world's uh, uh, world's leading scientists in uh, psychology, sociology, uh, mental health research. Uh, you can check that out too. It's like on, uh, so it's a like world after COVID dot info 
and uh, we on the podcast go through different questions and uh, pick out different sort of statements uh, from uh, these series of uh, video interviews uh, that I've conducted last year. But beyond that, uh, there's a whole range of different topics, depends on if you're interested in politics and polarization, misinformation, uh, well-being, or what it means to have a happy life, or good judgment, or uh, cultural differences. Yo soy Erika Dorn y estoy aquí con Alexander Putin. Y nosotros tenemos el suerte de ser los únicos que no hablan español como nativos, pero que tenemos que hablar un poco de este episodio en español. A mí, eh, lo que después de escuchar a Igor Grossman, estuve pensando mucho en el, en el hecho de que sabiduría es eh, específico a cada, cada cultura es que no podemos como definir sabiduría en una frase, porque es específico a cada cultura. Y a mí sí, sí tiene sentido, porque en cada instan instante hay una necesidad de, de la sabia, de la sabiduría, que es específico a este, al, al contexto y no pertenece a otro contexto. ¿Y tú, Alex, qué te interesa? De acuerdo que sin el contexto, la sabiduría, como explica Grossman, no, no existe, no, no se puede existir. Y creo que él lo explicaba como una reflexión de una situación que, que siempre está filtrado por los contextos y, y como ha dicho Erika, la, las culturas en que se está situado. También hablan un poco sobre el contexto de diseño y el papel de, de la sabiduría entre el diseño y esto cuando hablan del que significa esto para el diseño y para los diseñadores es que siempre tenemos que pensar en las preguntas de para quién, eh, el diseño de quién y, y cómo podemos incorporar estos contextos en que Diseñamos. Eso tiene mucho sentido lo que dijiste de que en el respecto a sabiduría y diseño, diseño lo cual es sabio, es súper contextual y pertenece a una comunidad o es específico. A diseño que es sabio es, es diseñado por una comunidad y quizás de una comunidad. Entonces, en este sentido, Alex y yo estamos enseñando un clase ahora sobre diseño y, y, y inmigración y, y estamos pensando mucho en este, el hecho de que estamos leyendo el libro de Design Justice y tiene mucha sabiduría este libro en el hecho de que diseño es contextual, es lo, los mejores diseños son, vienen de, de la agencia del contexto. Otra cosa que, que me fascina sobre esta conversación es el hecho de que Igor dijo que sabiduría está más como podemos alcanzar o obtener más sabiduría si podemos integrar muchos, muchas vista, muchos vistos distintos. Y 
eso tiene también, me fascina, este, y estoy de acuerdo con eso en, en, el, en mi trabajo, el hecho de que no podemos perseguir nuevas, mejores situaciones sin la influencia de mucha gente, de muchas perspectivas. Entonces, yo creo que lo que está diciendo Igor es que sabiduría es un producto de muchas perspectivas. De acuerdo, que, que integra una multitud de disciplinas o, y procesos y metodologías. Él, por ejemplo, habla de la conexión entre sabiduría y, no tengo ni idea en español, uh, forecasting, <ríe> y como hacer modelos para anticipar el futuro. Y él explica que no solo la, la exactitud no es solo el, la meta, sino el proceso de acercar a un producto es parte de, forma parte de acercarnos a una sabiduría sobre una cosa. Otro punto, porque todo, todo tiene valor lo que estás diciendo y, y lo que escuchamos. Otra cosa que queríamos notar o quiero notar es, es el hecho de que en, en este episodio Igor dijo que hay otros aspectos que son importantes a tener o, o, o a, a sabiduría, lo cuales son humildad y como, no sé en español, pero ese en, diría mágico o estrangement. Y eso también me fascina porque como que sabiduría dice que no todo puede ser explicado. Hay cosas que son inexplicables y po podemos acercarnos a sabiduría si tenemos humildad y un poco de, y, y si aceptamos la mágica o lo que, el hecho de que no todo es, es conocido. En este sentido, yo creo que Alex y yo tenemos quizás puntos de vista eh, diferentes, pero lo que me dice, sabes que al final del episodio estuve pensando mucho en el hecho de que como la sabiduría es algo que no puede definir re, re bien, porque al instante que pongamos un, una definición, quizás pierde su belleza, la sabiduría. No, sí, como que no tiene vida si de, estamos explicando demasiado lo que es sabiduría. Entonces, en ese sentido, me di cuenta que lo que es sabiduría es una conversación tan profunda en la cual estamos accesando partes de nue nuestros mismos y nuestras experiencias y quizás también... Eh, sabiduría que está pasado por generaciones hacia nosotros, hacia otra persona. Y no sé si el método, el método científico aplica bien a, como un método de conocer o saber sabiduría. En mi opinión, quizás son un poco, no son com compatibles, compatibles. ¿Qué piensas tú, Alex, de eso? Porque al final sentí como que hablamos de sabiduría, pero no, no pude accesarlo mientras esa, esa, esa conversación. Como has dicho, Erika, como ha dicho Erika, hemos hablado un poco de, de esto antes y yo creo que el método científico, científico o lo que sea, eh, sí se puede formar parte de este proceso de acercarse a una sabiduría. Y creo que, eh, por ejemplo, la, la escritora de... Robin Wall Kimmer en su libro Braiding Sweetgrass hace conexiones entre la ciencia y la etnobotanía y, y creo que eso se 
todo se informe su, su la sabiduría que ella está comunicando. Pero Erika, también has dicho algo que me impresionó, que fue la... Hablaste de sabiduría como conversación y algo. Eso es algo que nunca he pensado en cómo así. Pero a mí me gusta tanto porque, no sé, eh, porque estoy leyendo mucho sobre las relaciones entre eh, todas las cosas y sabiduría como conversación entre diálogo, entre sí mismo y el mundo eterno. Eso me eh, empieza a acercar a la belleza de que hablabas antes. Gracias, Alex. Estoy de acuerdo, de hecho. Y, y por eso quizás es, es un punto para completar este summary, porque la verdad es que este proyecto de Design in Transition, Design in Transition, este podcast, quizás es un es una prueba <ríe> a accesar más sabiduría a través de otros métodos que los libros y de quizás menos per perspectivas. Estamos intentando como tejer sabiduría de mucha gente distinta en este, este podcast. Así que qué bueno que Igor nos, nos dio este chance de conversar sobre esto dónde accesamos sabiduría y, y qué es. Entonces, para nuestros, eh, como digo, escuchadores, <ríe> oyentes, dejamos con esta pregunta. ¿Cómo puede usted accesar sabiduría? ¿Dónde hay acceso a sabiduría? Y hay lugares donde y maneras en las cuales es más accesible. Design in Transition podcast brought to you by Marisol Ortega, Nandini Nair, Sofia Bosch Gomez, Alex Polzin, Silvana Juli, Erica Dorn, with the support of the School of Design at Carnegie Mellon University. The audio production was done by Kyle Levy. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to subscribe and follow us on Twitter and Instagram as we release new episodes. You can find us at D in Transition. We welcome direct messages about new guest suggestions, ideas, and comments. Until the next episode.